currently studying through the book of Romans. We find our place in the 15th chapter. As we will look together this morning at verses 14 to 21. We did look at verses 14 to 16 last time. We're going to have to cover some territory that we've already covered in order to continue in the flow of verse 17. And to and through verse 21. So please stand for the reading of God's word. Romans 15, beginning in verse 14. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. But on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder, because of the grace given me by God, to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel. Not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation, but as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard, will understand. This ends the reading of God's word, and you may be seated this morning. John Patton left Scotland in fifteen or eighteen fifty-eight uh, to the New Hebrides Islands, uh, island of savage cannibals. I'm reading his autobiography right now. And this is a group of people who practiced infanticide and the killing of widows, the widows of deceased men, thinking that they could serve their husbands in the next world. So they would kill them. And Patton says in his autobiography, and I quote, that their worship was entirely a service of fear. Its aim being to propitiate this or that evil spirit to prevent calamity or to secure revenge. They deified their chiefs so that almost every village or tribe had its own sacred man. They also worshipped the spirits of departed ancestors and heroes through their material idols of wood and stone. Their whole worship was one of slavish fear. And so far as I ever could learn, they had no idea of a God of mercy or grace. End quote. Now, eventually, Patton would see the entire island turn to Jesus Christ for salvation um, during um, his course of ministry. Uh, But throughout his time there, um, he would suffer enormous hardship and heartache. Shortly after his arrival, he would lose both his wife and their baby boy. Physically suffering with fevers, regularly facing death, along with many other perils, he was a man who was already a successful, very effective pastor in Scotland, by the way. Having been repeatedly urged to remain at home, Patton writes, my mind was finally resolved that though I loved my work and my people, yet I felt that I could leave them to the care of Jesus, who would soon provide them a better pastor than I, and that with regard to my life amongst the cannibals, as I had only once to die. End quote. You see, Patton was willing to go down swinging. Right? That's street lingo. The guy may go down, but he goes down swinging. Swinging with the gospel. What moved him to become a missionary to a savage island, people, cannibals? 
quite simply, a passion to see them saved. An ambition to preach Christ. Fervor. To see them turn from darkness to light. Eagerness to win them to Christ. To declare Christ where Christ had not been named or heard. Not unlike the Apostle Paul. What moves us? We're believers. I ask you this morning, what is your ambition? What is your ambition? You know, Paul didn't aimlessly run about haphazardly doing the work of the Lord. He had a specific goal in mind. That was to preach Christ and see the saints come to maturity in Christ. To preach and disciple, to evangelize and make disciples of those that God converts. So Paul's motivation wasn't only the love of Christ. That's a good motivation, by the way, the love of Jesus, amen? Paul had another motivation. You know what it was back in chapter 14? It was the judgment seat of Christ. The judgment seat, that's where believers will stand. Not the great white throne where unbelievers will stand, but the judgment seat. Chapter 14, verse 10. For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God, for it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. That was one of his motivations for ministry. Now, we all know what it's like to have a productive day. Amen? Where at the end of the day, you experience a sense of accomplishment. Is that not good? I don't care what you do, whether you build houses or tear them down. If it's not standing, there's a sense of accomplishment if you're into demolition. If you build houses, there's a sense of accomplishment when you finish a room. You can sit back and enjoy the fact that goals have been met, chores are done, projects are completed, compared to a day of squandered time. Or at the end of the day, there's a sense of what? Failure. Living the Christian life in a non-Christian world is demanding. It's difficult. It's challenging. The temptation, you see, is to check out. To just live the Christian life, which becomes no more than just attending Lord's Day service. And even for some, uh, I mean, they barely have the fortitude to drag themselves out and into church. That's not really having a goal in mind. But thankfully, God provides a variety of means to keep us strong, to keep us hopeful, to keep us encouraged, so long as we're engaged. This is an engaged activity. Amen? Now, these last two chapters of Romans finish with a variety of themes that will assist in directing us. Not unlike Paul. Not unlike John Patton. As we live each day for Christ, with the finish line in mind, and Christ in view. Because we are Christians. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. We're in union with Him. And that's an everlasting union. Now, remember, Paul is writing to a people for whom he had never met. He longed to meet these people, but at this point, he had not. And their Christian witness, their knowledge, their maturity in Christ was proclaimed in that day throughout the known world. Who remembers Romans 1? Let's turn back there, shall we? Look at what he says to this group. Chapter 1, verse 8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you for I long to see you. Notice this. Notice this humility that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged. 
by each other's faith, both yours and mine. That's the apostle speaking. Now, you fast forward to chapter 15 with that in mind. And Paul writes that these people, okay, verse 14, chapter 15, verse 14, that these people are full of goodness, knowledge, and therefore they're able to instruct one another. Did you get that? Question. Are we good stewards of what God has given us? You can ponder that within yourself. They're full of goodness. Notice, their goodness is visible. Their knowledge of the truth is evident. They have a firm grasp on Christian truth. They know their doctrine. They know the gospel. They know what's not the gospel. Goodness, as opposed to malice, which is a general term for for evil. If you're full of goodness, you'll be filled with good motives. Amen? Your motivation is good. Combined with biblical knowledge enables you then to instruct one another. Remember the word instruction we looked at last time? It doesn't come from the word didasco, which means to, to teach, to inform. But it's nutheteo, which means to redirect, to correct, to, here it is, reprove, uh, to admonish. Nutheteo. As in nuthetic counseling. Here's the problem, here's what the word says, and here's the solution to the problem. It's very simple. People come in for marital counseling. If they're Christians, they've been Christian a while, I think a good question is asked, what do you suppose the Lord would have you do about this? What's the word say? Here's the problem, here's what the word says, what's the solution? It's called obedience to the word of God by faith. So being mature in their knowledge, they have the capacity, they have the ability to admonish one another. Psalm 11, verse 7 says, For the Lord is righteous, and he loves righteous deeds. He loves it. The upright shall behold his face. So this is calling one another to obedience. This is a form of engagement, by the way, within the body of Christ. They're able to do the tale. They're able to reprove one another, to redirect your thinking when it's gone off track. Now, as I said last week in passing, and this is very important, um, this isn't a call for just anybody to arbitrarily or at random play the role of the congregational nuthetic counselor. Amen? It's preceded by goodness and proper knowledge. Not your opinion. Your opinion doesn't matter. Bad motives equal knowledge without what? Love, which is puffed up and sounds like a clanging gong. I'd go beat on that thing right now just to make a point. It's irritating. Also, doctrinal zealots, young doctrinal zealots uh, who are still steeped in ignorance are also bad candidates for Nuthateo. Three years ago, I was incredibly embarrassed for a 25-year-old young man who wanted to take me out to coffee to, to school me in how I should be doing ministry according to his opinion. And when you're young and you're new to understanding doctrine, especially reformed doctrine, far too many young men have a tendency to think that they're qualified all of a sudden to, to provide counsel to everyone, especially if they have a semester or two under their belt in seminary. But the problem with being 25 and gaining this kind of knowledge is that you're absolutely ignorant of your ignorance. No offense, 20-something-year-olds, at all. If you're going to try to school someone or tail someone, make sure you come with open Bible and not your opinion. Can I get a witness? When you're 25, you have no idea what you don't know yet. You may know some theology and some ecclesiology, but, you know, this poor chap, one day, is, I hope, is going to be very embarrassed. How many of you who are over 40 remember when you were in your 20s, how embarrassing those moments were? You thought you knew so much. Paul's words are for those in Rome who, who he views as mature and ever maturing. This is the Christian life. They're able. 
So why does he write such an extensive letter to a people who already have such knowledge, who already have such goodness, who already have such ability? Quite simply, I, see, I think we see the answer in verse 15. Notice, it's to remind them of what they already know. <laughs> we need reminders, amen, because we have a tendency, number one, to forget the gospel, and number two, to forget everything that's attached to the gospel. Notice, Paul says in verse 15, On some points I've written to you very boldly by way of what? Reminder. Because of the grace given to me by God. Another question. How open and receptive are we to correction? How open and receptive are we to reminders of the things we claim to already know? That's a sign of a mature church. A mature people. D.A. Carson, and I've said something before about Carson. There's a lot of opinions about D.A. Carson. Whatever your opinion is, listen to the man because he's smarter than all of us put together. (laughs) Quote, one generation knows the gospel. The next generation assumes the gospel. The next generation forgets the gospel. End quote. And might I add, they also forget the instructions attached to the gospel. Paul's driven, passionate ambition was that God's people didn't forget. So you evangelize and you disciple. That's the Christian life. Evangelizing the lost and equipping those, discipling those that he births into the family. That must be our ambition. This must be our ambition. Now, Paul has not minced any words here, has he? He writes boldly, verse 15. Literally, he's written audaciously. He's written daringly. Bold men are daring men. And why on some points does he write so boldly to these believers in Rome who are so full of knowledge and goodness? Because he wanted to see them grow in grace. How do you grow in grace and knowledge? By the way of the truth of God applied to our hearts and boldly declared. Boldly. Now we've seen over the months through these chapters the practical effect of believing. Chapter 12 and on, the practical effect of belief, the practical effect of faith in Jesus Christ, because the burden of the preacher is to proclaim the whole counsel of God to the people of God. That's the burden of any good preacher. Not to merely preach about his favorite topics, let alone the favorite topics of the people. Preachers work and preachers study to be correct, number one. To be effective, number two, exhorting, encouraging, to be persuasive, to be admonishing, which can sometimes hurt. However, without the power of the Holy Spirit, guess what happens? Nothing. No thing happens. So Paul, in response to the gifts given to him, the power, the presence of God in his ministry, yields up to God the very lives of these sanctified converts. This church, these people, as a sacrifice because of God's grace shown to Paul. Notice, because of the grace given me by God. Notice verse 16. To be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Notice he's borrowing language from from the Old Testament priesthood. Paul emphasizes that that his ministry was not to offer up sacrifices for the Gentiles. That was accomplished at Calvary, beloved. Okay? Not to offer up sacrifice for them. No. Christ did that. His greatest joy was to, to see the Gentiles saved and then offered up as a living sacrifice to God. Chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. 
What can we give to God that we haven't first received from God? Anybody? No thing. And that truth stares you in the face every week. Did you know that? If you just, I think it's the front of our bulletin, isn't it? Isn't there a, Rome, uh, a Romans 11 on there? What's it say? Romans eleven thirty six. For from him and through him and to him are what? All things to him be glory forever. Amen. Is that on the front? So Paul proceeds now to, to, to speak of the reality of what had now been accomplished. Notice, through him. Verse 17. Paul begins to speak about himself. He begins to speak about his life and that which he feels encouraged about. Let's just say this. He is very proud about this. Proud. With regard to his work for God. Because it's ultimately for the glory of God. And he's highlighting some things here, beloved, that also to apply, apply to us. Believers in any age and in any vocation. He looked back, looks back at his ministry thus far from Jerusalem to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel. Illyricum, near where Yugoslavia was or Serbia and Bosnia are today. See, finishing well, finishing well was Paul's ambition. Do you want to finish well? I want to finish well. Okay, but I fall down all the time. So do I, man. All the time. But you want to finish the race. So you got to get up. Amen? You get knocked down in the ring, you get back up. I used to box. And this one guy I could never beat, he beat me twice in tournaments, state tournaments. He beat me twice. Danny Mangiano. I was a teen. That dude had a 5 o'clock shadow at 10 in the morning. I wanted to see his birth certificate. He had strength I did not have. And I could not beat the man. Nobody in our weight class, in our boxing club, could beat the young man. I think he was a man. We were boys. We were teenagers. You get knocked, he knocked me down, you get back up, and I'm not going to quit. Once they stopped the fight, I couldn't do anything about it, right? But you get back up, man. You go, right? He wanted to finish well. Later on, not long before Paul was to be beheaded, he wrote Timothy. 2 Timothy 4, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. The time for my departure has come. I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. Henceforth, henceforth, there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. To get to this stage of life, to have this view, is to have a great sense of accomplishment in what God has provided you. That which has done by way of union with Christ. He's in Christ. By the power of Christ, the Holy Spirit, for the glory of Christ. So it's by Him, it's from Him, it's for Him. Verse 17, notice, in. In Christ Jesus then... In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work. That's evangelism. That's discipleship. Because of his union with Christ. At first glance, it seems as though, oh, man, he's, he's prideful, and all pride is wrong. Not so. Not so, bro. There is sinful pride, is there not? Oh, yes, there is. We're all familiar with that. But there's also proper pride. That which Christ has done through us. James Boyce, the late great James Boyce, writes, This can get distorted and destructive because of sin, but a right kind of pride is helpful and even necessary if it is focused properly. End quote. I mean, as a matter of fact, Paul has said in, in Galatians 6 and verse 14, Far be it for me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Right? Far be it. On the other hand, he was not afflicted with a self-depreciating kind of false modesty. Oh. Well, I didn't really disciple them, you know. I... No, man, you laid down your life for those people. Because of union with Christ. One in him. So he speaks honestly. He speaks openly 
about what he's accomplished, even by way of his missionary zeal. He was a zealot. This is good zealousness. He didn't bring his opinion. He brought the truth. His glorying was not in himself. It was in the Lord who bought him. So he had plenty about which he could speak and speak on. We want to hear from Paul, do we not? Of course we do. As a matter of fact, there was a long line of converts and churches that marked the lines of his ministry. Blood, sweat, tears, and a whole lot of prayers. So Paul's able to glory in his work for two reasons. Number one, union with Christ. One, in Christ. Along with the work of Christ accomplished through him. A divine calling. This is divine work. Divinely ordained work. The best works we can produce in and of ourselves are what? They're nothing but filthy rags. Nothing but filthy rags. Our works must be brought to the Father through the Son. Otherwise, they remain of no value. But they are of value when they're brought through the Son to the Father. Because we're in union with Him. So Paul's boasting turns credit away from himself, gives it to God. He's able to glory in his work for two reasons. Don't forget these. Number one, again, his union with Christ. We say that the word in, in verse 17, and because of the divine nature of the ministry. There is a divine nature to all that you do in Christ, regardless of your vocation. Verse 18. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed. So Christ has and is accomplishing much through my life, says Paul. This is obviously a synergistic cooperation here, is it not? The divine work of God and and synergistic, meaning Paul's response and engagement with the leading of the Holy Spirit who indwells him to do the work of the ministry, to do the things of God for the glory of God. Monergistic salvation all the way. Synergistic activity as we're brought into that union and communion with God through Christ. Who just sits around and goes, well, you know, you're going to move me like a puppet? I'll just lay around on my couch. No, you engage by faith. Then there's a sense of great accomplishment. Paul feels this. Paul experiences this. It produces joy. What Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed. Preaching about Christ along with his lifestyle in Christ. Words and deeds. But most specifically, the deeds he's talking about are those that accompanied his preaching. Notice, verse 19. By the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. Signs simply speaks of miracles. Signs. Wonders is used to emphasize the extraordinary activity or character of those miracles. Impressing it upon the memory of those who witnessed them. Now, the primary purpose of miracles, beloved, in the first century was to prove that the person performing the miracle spoke or wrote by the power of the one true God. By the power of the Holy Spirit. In in other words, to validate their message. Because the canon wasn't closed yet. They didn't have the New Testament yet. The one who had the powers, the supernatural signs and wonders, it was there to validate their message or to validate them as an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's known as signs of an apostle. 2 Corinthians 12, 12. Guess what? The apostles are gone. Therefore, so are signs of an apostle. The signs went with the apostles. Some believers mistakenly, ignorantly think that sign gifts should follow them as well. They'll take a verse like this. Jesus in the upper room with his disciples. 
He said, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do because I'm going to the Father. Did Jesus mean you would do greater miracles than I? No. History proves otherwise. All of the apostles to whom he's addressing in the upper room never even came close to the amount of miracles Jesus did. At the end of this very book, John, it says all the libraries and the, all the books of all the libraries of the world couldn't even contain what he's done. Jesus calmed a storm. Paul was in a storm, and he was shipwrecked in that storm. <laughs> Paul left people sick. Timothy had a stomach ailment. Trophimus, I left sick in Miletus. Why didn't he heal him? There was no need for these kind of sign miracles. The word was being validated. The word was being circulated by the power of the Holy Spirit. So the first reason that this isn't what Jesus meant is history proves otherwise. Second thing, that's not what Jesus meant by what he said. By the presence of the Holy Spirit, whom Jesus would send, would enable his people, yes, these apostles, as well as those who would come after, to, to even to us to this very day, that evangelism and teaching and preaching and serving and ministry, beginning at Pentecost and unto the end of the age, would be greater in extent. The most important work Jesus did was to preach his gospel, not power of raising people from the dead the extent of the mission. If we did greater sign miracles than Jesus, would that not detract from his messianic visit to this earth? Yes, it would. God's work accomplished through us by word and deed is the same word that Paul preached. It's the same gospel. Deeds are not the same as in signs and miracles and wonders, but in action and engagement, they are the same. Those kind of deeds. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ, as I am of Christ. You know, Paul could say, through my ministry, the Gentiles, or or this very church at Rome, have not only given lip service to Christ, the Christ that they serve, but also by way of their words and deeds. Not mere lip service. All accomplished, by the way, by the, the, the power of the Holy Spirit, the same spirit that I did my ministry, Paul says. They do theirs. You do yours, same spirit. This is what they say, this is what they do. This isn't mere confessionalism, amen? Our aim ought to be not to merely make a confession about about faith in Jesus Christ, but also to maintain a transformed life that bears witness as a sign to the message we preach. Those kind of deeds. Paul's kind of deeds were... The manifestation of of miracles to validate his message as an apostle, known as signs of an apostle. Those signs have no need to exist today. The righteousness of his people, that's the need, that's the call. Because we're in union with him. So being in union means we've been brought to life, and when you're brought to life, what do babies begin to do after they crawl around for a while? They begin to walk. Romans 6. We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead to the glory of the Father, we too might what? Walk in the newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. You're raised to walk. Not call down fire from the sky. Right? Not to call people out of the grave, but to walk in newness of life. Enabled, like Paul, to fulfill our ministry of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Unable to do anything in and of ourselves. Jesus said, without me you can do nothing, but in him we can do everything he commands us and enables us to do. Without me you can do nothing. 
Verse 20. And thus, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel. Paul said, therefore, my ambition is to go raise people from the dead. He didn't say that. Amen? To go raise up people from their sickbed. No, my ambition is to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard him will understand. There he cites Isaiah 52, 15. That becomes his missionary motto. So Paul had no need or desire to trespass on others' labors, to pad out his evangelistic numbers. You know, why go and poach off someone else's field of labor? He knows that there's others doing the work that he's doing, and and let them glory in that work. Let them rejoice in that work. I have enough to glory in, he said. need to poach off them. The promise of Isaiah is being fulfilled. The Gentiles are coming to faith. And 2,000 years later, beloved, we we see how significantly this has been fulfilled because there's far more Gentile Christians than there are Jewish Christians. Amen? Far more, as promised. That doesn't mean God's done with ethnic Jewish people. We, We covered that in Romans 11. So don't accuse me of being anti-Semitic. Just listen to the messages if you weren't here. So Paul played a very unique role in the spread of this good news. This was his ambition. And I want to use the rest of our time for the sake of application. And I want to key in on verse 20. And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel. Now, this does not have to do with professional preaching, beloved. This is an an ambition in announcing good news. Announcing good news. We've all been recipients of good news, the good news of the gospel. Now, this word ambition is is a simple word. It's a unique combination of words. It combines uh, love and honor together. Philos or phileo, you're familiar with that term. Brotherly affection, fondness, combined with the word teammate to honor, loving honor. This isn't a burden. It's an honor. This is Paul's ambitious, ambitious endeavor. Paul opened this very letter saying that he was not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto everyone who saved both Jew and Gentile alike. Jew first, and then the Gentile. It is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. The gospel is the power because it's rooted and and promised in the Old Testament through the prophets, made manifest and therefore fulfilled through Jesus the Christ who who lived, died, rose again, and ascended. It's his gospel. It's his message. It's the power. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. That's the gospel in a nutshell, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 4. So may we not be ashamed, beloved, of that which has made us right with God? May we not be ashamed? Jesus said, if you're ashamed of me, I'll be ashamed of you before my Father. You don't want to confuse, however, this is very important. I was reminded of this a long time ago. Feeling nervous, feeling uneasy, feeling fearful when you are encountering someone who's an unbeliever, getting ready to preach the gospel, that's normal. That is not the same as being ashamed of Christ and his gospel. Okay, so don't let the devil confuse you when you are fearful, trepidatious, anxious, nervous every time you're getting ready to share the gospel and you stumble and you bumble. That's not shame of the gospel. Are you with me? It's very very important. Feeling nervous, feeling jittery, feeling anxious when, when, when approaching an unbeliever with God's gospel is more typical than not. When I was around, before I was in like full-time ministry, I was around unbelievers all the time and preached the gospel probably almost every day. 
I don't know that there's ever been a time where I wasn't nervous. Oh, I would be bold, yeah, but that doesn't mean I'm not, like, stirred in my gut. Right? Even bold proclaimers feel something. There's, there's something there. Paul felt this. What is our ambition? This is the question. What's our ambition as believers, as redeemed, blood-bought children of God in Christ Jesus? I mean, we've received all the benefits of redemption, right? Forgiveness, adoption, justification, sanctification, the certainty of glorification. All that is a product of being one in Christ, in union with Christ. We have life in Christ. So whatever your vocation, as I said in Sunday school, banker, baker, construction worker, police officer, whatever, whatever the vocation is, you, not unlike Paul, are in union with Christ, and may we have an ambition like Paul. The love and honor of being recipients. That's our ambition. So Paul's missionary job description really isn't just for him or the John Pattons of the world. This is something fundamental to every Christian who's in union with Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, Paul writes this. If anyone is in Christ, he is a? He's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself, gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and trusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. Through us. So this kind of ambition is not merely for the career missionary, pastor, full-time ministry leader, this kind of ambition comes from a, a resolve, a, a determination to proclaim this truth. So we have to be resolved to do this. So how do we do this? How? Well, I think we're given some instruction in Colossians 4. Number one, we've got to pray for it. Amen? If we want divine appointments for those who don't know the Lord, we have to pray for them. So we pray for them. Now we're engaged with the Holy Spirit. We're engaged in prayer. So when they're presented to us, we're going to be cognizant of it. We're going to be conscious of it. And then we'll have the faith only by God to step out and say something. Okay, notice. Colossians 4. Verse 2. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of time, and let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. So we pray. Amen? Lord, I pray that, that, and I pray this for all of us all the time. Lord, I pray that you will provide divine appointments with unbelievers before our body and give them the courage just to speak the gospel and, and with the hope that their heart will be prepared, the unbeliever, to receive it and boost the faith and encourage our people. Because without a conscious effort of engagement, it will, heart, it will not happen. Amen? It's not going to happen. So we must be resolved to do this, to, to know this. We, we, we pray about this. We then are watchful. We watch for opportunities to do this. And then by faith, in the leading of the Spirit, we step out and we announce this. And guess what? The weight of their conversion, guess what? It's not meant for your shoulders to bear. It's not on you. You're never going to convert anybody. But I've been preaching the gospel for years and I've never seen anyone to come to faith. Well, their life isn't over yet, amen? So the challenge is getting over the fear of rejection. That's the challenge. That's the biggest challenge we face. Rejection. Now, we already know what the scripture says. Many are called, but few are chosen. There's many on the broad path that leads to destruction. Very few enter into the narrow gate. Very few. We know as mature believers, that 
God has elected for himself before the foundation of the earth those who will be what? Saved. Do you know who they are? No. So we just preach the word. And you're either planting the seed of truth or you're either watering the seed of truth, but, but only God can bring forth the increase. It's his work. Explaining the gospel with eloquency and inaccuracy doesn't bring people to Christ. Well, I know so and so, he can say it so eloquently. His eloquence does not cause anyone to be born again. So don't be intimidated. Just glean from your brother or sister who's eloquent. Glean, man. Take it in, learn, grow, preach it. Pray, preach, walk, wait for an open door. Pray for an opportunity, step through it, proclaim the truth, and don't carry the burden on your shoulders for that person's conversion because it's not yours to bear. I love what Jesus said in the Gospel of Mark. Chapter 4, verse 26. Listen to this. The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. Okay, now, remember what the man does after that? What does he do? He goes to sleep. Listen. The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day. And the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. That's some comfort for you, brothers and sisters. I've been preaching the gospel with the same guy for 17, 18 years. And I still wonder, is, is this entering his skull? Just like mental assent to this truth? I don't know. Is it bouncing? I don't know. Well, it's not, it's not up to me to convert him. Given the opportunity, I'll just keep throwing it out there. So the point of Jesus' parable is that the word does the work, not the man. I, I think I told you, I know I've told you, about my friend in prison. Donnie Sabatos is his name. He's been in prison for 32 years. And I would go into the prison in the 90s, doing ministry, preaching, teaching the, the believers, preaching and proclaiming the gospel to unbelievers. And, and he was my favorite unbeliever. He was my favorite guy that mocked me. Mocked the message, mocking me. He's now a believer 15 years later. I just spoke to him on Friday. Sent him a box of books. He's growing like a weed. Wants sound doctrine. Pray for Donnie Sabatos. He's growing. Maturing. And all he said, he makes reference to me planting the seed back then. That's all I was doing, planting the seed, watering the seed. That's it. God brought him to faith. It's the word that makes dead bones live. It's the word and spirit that breathes life into the spiritually dead. You can't do it. Just let this be your ambition and preach it. 1 Corinthians 3, Neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything. But only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one. And each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. We are God's field. We are God's building. As his field, as his building, as his ambassadors, we're to spread the word to those who are dead. They're dead. You're preaching to dead people, but you too at one time were dead. You've been made alive. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. You were brought to life by way of the word and brought into union with Christ. John Patton's decision to go to the savage island of the New, he the New, Hebrid New Hebrides Islands didn't come without criticism. On one account before leaving, a respected elder in the church, a Mr. Dixon, chided Patton and his wife. And he said, you'll be eaten by cannibals. To which Patton replied, Mr. Dixon, you're advanced in years now. And your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave. They're to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that 
if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I'm eaten by cannibals or by worms. End quote. So may we, by the grace of God, not unlike John Patton, however we may go down, go down swinging with the gospel. Having, like Paul, a reason, here it is, a reason to be proud of my work for God. That's evangelism, that's discipleship, it's the work of the ministry given to all of us. A work of eternal significance that includes our time, our talent, our spiritual gifts, and our money. (laughs) You know what you value by what you spend your money on. I knew it would get a response. And then may we all together stand in the end, having lived a Christian life used by God for the glory of God. And as I prayed earlier, Pastor Chuck Smith, Calvary Chapel, just went to heaven a couple days ago, and he said this. He was quoting someone else, but I don't know who it was. And you've all heard this. You only have one life, and it will soon be passed. Only what you do for Christ last. Amen? May this be our ambition. May this be our prayer. If it's not our ambition, pray that it would be our ambition. We're helpless. We need him for everything. So we cry out to him, Lord, this isn't my ambition. Make it my ambition. That's where we start. Change my heart. Make this the driving force of my life by your Holy Spirit for your glory. Because I never share the gospel, Lord, and I want to start doing it. Amen? Start doing it by the grace of God. Just be honest. He knows. He doesn't love you any less. Father, we do thank you as we prepare to come to the table this morning for the finished work of your Son, the enablement of the Holy Spirit within us to do your will for your glory. Lord, help us. Please help us to to have this as our ambition. May we be resolved to be ready to give a reason for the hope that lies within us. May we be ready to engage our unbelieving friends and family as you might lead us to to pray for an open door, to wait for the open door, to walk through the open door, to be watchful, and to have courage, Lord, confidence not in and of ourselves, but the confidence and presence of your Holy Spirit to proclaim this very truth for your glory, to see your elect come to faith, to be born again, whether we're planting or watering, Just waiting for the harvest is only you can bring forth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.